Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our first guests will be from Insight, will be Monica Stein and Russ Maynard, who will be talking about Insight, which is North America's only safe injection facility. And our second guest will be Pat Denning. And uh, before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and for our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available on Amazon, and you can get more information about our book uh, on our website if you go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Now, I'm still waiting for our first callers to uh, call in. Um, Insight is the only safe injection facility in North America. It's located in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. And uh, I think our first guests are on the air right now. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, is this Monica? This is Monica Stein here, and I've got Russ Maynard and Tim Gauthier with me. Very good, very good. Uh, Why don't you tell us, what is a safe injection facility? Well, a supervised injection facility is an environment where injections are supervised by nurse or other staff. At Insight, we have nurses and healthcare workers supervising injections 12 at a time. So, what is the purpose of this? Tim, why don't you answer that? Yeah, the purpose of this site is that we can monitor people for immediate signs of overdose. Because um, Insight came about because there was um, an alarming rate of overdoses happening in Vancouver's downtown east side. So, something had to be done where people were looking out for people who were dying needlessly of overdose. So, that's where we come in. So, if somebody overdoses in our site, we can intervene immediately. So, do you have any statistics about uh, overdose prevention at Insight? Do we have any statistics about overdose prevention at Insight? Is that the question? Yes. Um, Have you found that that it's very helpful in preventing overdose? Well, a recent article in The Lancet showed that overdose deaths surrounding the site in the immediate area of the site were reduced by 35%. Okay, that sounds really good. Um, how about uh, some people might worry that this would increase drug use. Uh, is there any evidence that a safe injection facility increases drug use in the area? There's no evidence of that. Okay, and um, what, are, what are some of the other benefits of Insight? Are there other benefits besides overdose prevention? Um, Certainly there are. There is a reduction in infectious disease. We also provide an enormous amount of wound care, an enormous number of referrals to other health care facilities. I think last year we had 450 referrals to on-site, which is our resident detox just upstairs. There's a lot that goes on at InSight. It was always meant to be a bridge to other health care for participants who are sort of getting lost between the cracks. So, do you think Insight uh, helps uh, increase participation in drug treatment or in detox? Yes, it does. Of course it does. People are 30% more likely to access detox or treatment if they come to Insight. Okay. How long have you been operating? Since 2003. Okay. That's good. That's like eight years now. Um, Is there uh, any... Any difficulties with the government? Is there any opposition to Insight? Only at the federal level. Insight, I always like to say, is a there's an irony that if you said to people it's a controversial project, most people would agree right away. But it's an unusual type of controversy in that at the city level, politically, all the parties at City Hall support Insight. No one would run for mayor in Vancouver and say, uh, part of my platform is I want to close down Insight. It's similarly in Victoria, the capital of BC. 
Um, Hello, are you there? Yep. Did you lose oh. us? No, no, I just, uh, I just got uh, some silence there. No, you're still here. Okay, you're fine. Um, so the the local community is uh, is quite happy with the inside, but there's uh, problems at the federal level. Uh, the federal government apparently doesn't uh, care for this too much, and there's some opposition. So um, I'm not completely sure who our audience is. Like, is this Canada? Like, is everyone aware of Canadian politics, or is this America? Or Our audience is probably primarily American, although this is available worldwide to anyone that wants to tune in. I think mostly there are Americans here. Okay, so Americans should understand that uh, there are four parties in uh, at, the, at the federal level, and three of those parties are on record of supporting Insight. One party, the Conservatives, uh, I guess analogous to the Republican Party, uh, are the party that are trying to uh, close the project. And um, as I was saying, I guess the short version of everything I just said was all political parties, city level, province level, which is analogous to the state level, and the federal level, all parties support uh, the project. And there's just one political party at the federal level that wants to close it. Okay. Uh, have there been any recent uh, battles, court battles? I thought I heard something about a recent uh, something going on in court. Is there something going on? There have been a total of three court, uh, quote-unquote, battles. Um, the latest was just last week on Thursday, and that was in the Supreme Court of Canada Appeals. Uh, and it's a one-day hearing, and it'll be six to 12 months before we get a judgment on that. But we're optimistic. As I said, it's the third uh, court case, the second appeal of the first court case, and we've won the first two. So uh, I think it's fair to say there's some momentum going in our direction. Okay. Are people afraid that there might be an increase uh, an increase in crime if there's a injection facility in the area? I think people are concerned that that might be an issue, but that hasn't been found. Like, the evidence shows that there's no rise in crime with having a supervised injection site in the neighborhood. So it seems like it's, it's all advantages. There are fewer overdoses. Uh, how about the impact on drug use? Does it uh, increase drug use? No evidence that suggests it increased drug use, none whatsoever. So it increases uh, engagement with treatment or detox. Um, does it increase crime or drug use that there's any evidence of? It seems like it's a, a really win-win situation here. It really is a win-win, Ken. The participant wins because he or she gets the care that they need and deserve. Public health wins because the uh, transmission of infectious disease is decreased. Uh, public order wins because you don't have a lot of people injecting on the sidewalk. Well, that helps a lot. Uh, have you found fewer uh, discarded syringes in the area since Insight started? Absolutely. Well, that's a really positive thing, too. Uh, would you be interested, any of you, in telling me how you got involved with this project? Oh, Sure, I'll start, and then we can all give you a little blurb. Sure. I always wanted to work at Insight. Prior to working at Insight as a counselor in 2005, which is when I started, I worked with street youth for about 10 years. And a lot of our street youth were, in, were injection drug users, even as young as the age of 18, uh, sorry, age of 11. And they would do really unsafe things like inject in public washrooms, and we had several young people die because they injected in secluded areas. So when I heard about the supervised injection site, and I determined that one day I would work there. Okay, that sounds really good. Um, who would like to go next? Uh, or did, did I lose you? Oh, no. we didn't lose us. We were just pointing fingers and <laughs> deciding who was going to go next. Okay. Well, that's me. 
Um, I'm Tim Goche, and um, I'm a registered nurse who works at Insight. I started there when I was still a student um, at the University of British Columbia. They put me there as a student placement where I was in a paid nursing position, and I just stayed on there after I was finished. I always wanted to work with marginalized and hard-to-reach individuals, populations. I thought that was going to be more homeless and um, Aboriginal people, and that's certainly a lot of who we see at Insight, but also with um, the IV drug using population who are highly stigmatized and highly marginalized, and I was really eager to get in there and um, offer healthcare services to people that are hard to offer healthcare services to, people that have a hard time accessing those services. Here comes Russ. And so lastly, uh, I have been working with the Portland Hotel Society, um, one of the groups that operates the site for uh, about 10 years, and um, an opportunity came up to work at Insight, and I jumped at that. Okay, that sounds good. I was just reading about uh, the Portland Hotel Society. I just got Gabor Mate's book uh, just a couple of days ago. He's going to be a guest on our show coming up soon. He works well, Go ahead. Oh, I was just saying that's great. We all know Gabor and have worked with him and think the world of him. Yeah, I think he's doing some really excellent work, some really important things. I mean, I've been in this kind of situation myself. I mean, about eight years ago, I was living in a wet housing in Minneapolis. So it was homeless housing where people could drink alcohol, something similar to, you know, a hotel society. So I can really empathize with uh, what he's writing about. Right. So I was fortunate that I found some ways to move up and out of that, but it was not an easy process. You know, society is like, when you're in that situation, there's, it's very hard to find resources to help you get up and out. It really is very difficult, and and I'm glad you shared that with us. And I wonder, what can you tell us what the difference was for you? Like, what was the thing that helped you, actually, in the end? Um, part of Several things helped me. One was I spent a lot of time at the public libraries using computers instead of hanging around the house drinking with all the guys. So I put some really strict limits on my drinking to just be once a week. Um, I got involved with the vocational rehabilitation program. That finally helped find me work. Um, the hardest thing I had was, you know, when I started making money, they didn't have any thing set up for me to put aside money for rent. They wanted me to turn it all over to to uh, my housing so that I wouldn't be able to get out. So, but fortunately, I had found someone online that uh, became a friend and would actually lend me a security deposit to get out, who I have since paid back. But uh, it was really difficult. It was like really being trapped there and not having good resources to get out at all. Yeah. Yeah. On that note, like... Uh I was going to say, you know, we listed a bunch of things that occur, uh, services at Insight, but um, less tangible ones are, you know, supporting people and providing a place for folks to come and talk to someone because we see people on a daily basis, so you know people. And when they're having a bad day or they need to talk or, you know, today someone I've known for years was saying, you know, can you uh, do everything you can to get me upstairs into um, on-site, the detox and recovery program and that kind of thing, being able to walk in and know somebody and uh, ask them for help and a favor and some attention and all that kind of stuff is a big part of what goes on on a daily basis at Insight. Well, it's really important. I mean, um these, these are people, and I've been one of these people, and, you know, we are uh, just, society looks down on us. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to interact with other people in society when you're in that situation. They just don't want to talk to you sometimes. You know. It's true, and we find that with lots of the participants at Insight, that the thing that they really appreciate about our staff is that we really try and engage people just where they're at and not look down on them and treat them like our brothers and sisters, which in the end they are. Okay, can you tell me a little bit more about OnSite? Uh, this is located upstairs from InSight. It's the same building, correct? That's correct. It's 12 rooms that are all sort of private. They have their own bathroom and uh, 12 rooms in which people can do withdrawal management. So 
we get a lot of opiate withdrawal, and we do a methadone taper for folks, you know, five to six days of rapid taper methadone to get them off the opiates, and we also do cocaine and other stimulants there. We try not to get involved in alcohol withdrawals unless they're really, really super safe, and um, that would mean, you know, they're not. it's not their main withdrawal is what I mean by that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you have a place to refer people that are having uh, alcohol withdrawals, et cetera? We do. We have Vancouver Detox here in Vancouver, and they do the medically managed detoxes, which is alcohol, benzos, and pregnant people. Okay, that sounds good. And then... Oh, so on-site is for detox. Uh, it's not a treatment facility then, is it? On the third floor, we have 18 beds of residential recovery where people can transition into full-on treatment, and we do sort of a, a wellness model there. So it's recovery, but it's low-barrier recovery. It's to get people used to the idea of going to groups and doing recovery in, in a more structured setting. Okay, do you uh, emphasize like cognitive behavioral therapy or 12 steps or what particular approach do you use or is it a mix? It's a real eclectic mix. We do a lot of wellness stuff. We do yoga and meditation and acupuncture. We do relapse prevention. We do cognitive therapy. It's a it's a program called the SMART program. I don't know if you've ever um, heard of those in, in your community, but it's based on cognitive therapy and it's sort of a group format. Kind of gives you, um, well, basically cognitive skills to work around relapse. Is, is this the same as smart recovery or is this a different approach? No, it is smart recovery. Okay. That's yes. it. I, mm -hmm. Yeah, we've had a guest here from smart recovery uh, on a previous episode. Yeah, I think it's a really good approach that's very helpful to people. It helps them find the, well, skills to cope with the situations, you know. You Learning cope. new coping mechanisms is super important in recovery. In fact, it's kind of the central central it, thing. It really is important. I mean, if you can cope with the situation in some way without the drug or the alcohol, then it's so much less necessary to have the drug or the alcohol. Yeah. Um, what, I'm just going to throw it open. Um, what else would you like to tell me about Insight and about what's going on in Vancouver up in your area there? Well, we've got a number of dynamic programs that are related to Insight. Insight is sort of our mothership, but Vancouver Coastal Health and PHS Community Services run a number of programs together. So there's Onsite, the detox, the residential recovery. Then there's a little place we call the Community Transitional Care Team, and that's nine beds of residential... There? Did I lose you? And? No, no. All I heard was a bunch of static and traffic. But I think uh -huh. we're back. Okay. Um, okay um, so I was talking about the community transitional care team. Did that come through? Yes, that was the last words I heard. Um, okay. So nine beds of IV antibiotic therapy in a residential setting for people who are currently using drugs or recently recovered and struggling. We also do palliative care in that residence, and we do a lot of ARV startups for HIV-positive people. It's special about the Community Transitional Care Team, or CTCT as we call it. It's just that we have a really, really high um, completion rate for people who are going through their IV antibiotic therapy. Because a lot of people who have those deep tissue infections that we're treating, like um, osteomyelitis or cellulitis or meningitis or whatever's going on with them, like these serious infections due to their um, IV drug use or however they got it. Um, what's, what's so special and unique about this program is that um, we build such strong relationships with our clientele that we have such a high completion rate. 
like I think it's like 90% plus of people complete their having antibiotic therapy, which is unheard of for our population to go through that same process in a hospital setting. This sounds really excellent. We also have the Rainier Treatment Program, which is a community of women up to 40 at a time uh, with 20 beds of intensive treatment, although there's 40 beds in the community entirely. And that's a women's only treatment center, also meant to be low barrier for women in the downtown east side. Generally, we're looking for people who are um, long-term addicted, have tried other recovery methods and haven't done well at them, and who may be involved in the survival sex trade. That sounds really excellent. That's, uh, that's a difficult population that really needs a lot of help. Right. They need a tremendous amount of support, and we are trying to be really reflexive in how we are managing that program. And when we get feedback from the women that they need more of one thing, less of another, then we're really trying to be responsive with it. That's really an important thing. Um, I think all too often the programs don't listen enough to client feedback and don't want to, they have an idea of how to do things and they don't want to even listen to what clients suggest that they need. I think all of our programs are very client sensitive. They're client driven actually. So we're trying to provide services that wrap around the needs of the people that we're trying to serve rather than trying to fit them into services that we create. I think it's so important. I mean, I think so many programs in the United States, particularly the Minnesota model, has their agenda. They want you to go to AA meetings, and that is the the most important part. It seems even more important than, you know, helping you to stop drinking or using drugs. Yeah, no, we're not very familiar with the Minnesota model. Um, well, I'm... I'm familiar with it because I've been through it, and uh, it was really about, you know, the treatment personnel imposing their agenda on the clients and not having the clients have any say back about what they need or what they want. Oh, that's unfortunate. But it is the most popular uh, format in the United States. You know, it's what Dr. Drew Pinsky is always on television here talking about when he does his, you know, television shows. It's uh, Yeah, that's the Minnesota model. I think there's a really a history of um, mistreatment of addicted people in terms of thinking that they don't know what they need and that they can't make good decisions ever and the whole idea of people in addiction being in denial and not ever being honest. Like there's a lot of prejudicial thought around addicted people. Yes, I found that to be very true. I think there's a lot of prejudicial thought, and I found it's very inaccurate. Uh, when you meet people where they are at, they're quite willing to be honest with you. Quite willing to be honest and quite willing to maximize their potential, whatever that might be in the moment. Yes, so I think uh, really uh, the United States treatment community has a lot to learn from the rest of the world, Canada also. that we really need to incorporate much more than we have. Do you think you'll ever see a supervised injection site in your community? Um, there are people that are not uh, in New York, where I live, also in uh, San Francisco, I believe. And, um, you know, there are people fighting for it. It's, it's, there's a lot of opposition to it here. Yeah, I've heard about that in New York and San Francisco, that they're a little bit more progressive in their um, in their initiatives to keep addicts and um, addicted people safe. Like, I've heard about their Narcan distribution programs, and I was really impressed with that. Narcan distribution programs now in the United States. Um, so that's going really good. There's some in New Mexico, too, which is also very progressive. Yeah. That's great, because we don't have that yet. That's something that we're, like, not just insight, but just activists in our communities are pushing for as well. It's working very well. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for being our guests tonight. I see that our next caller is coming on the air. So, thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation, Ken. All the best. Okay. 
I'm going to hang up on you now. I'm going to do a little blurb here for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge lay-led support group for anyone who wants to make a positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available on Amazon. This should be Pat Denny. I'm going to bring her right on the air now. Hello, Pat. Is that you? Hi, Ken. It is. Oh, it's good to have you on the show. How are you doing? Yes. I'm doing fine. It's wonderful to be able to actually talk to you almost in person. <laughs> I think we talked on the phone once or twice before, but uh, it's been a long time now. Uh, yeah. Let me yeah. let me introduce Pat Denny is the author of Over the Influence, which is the first layman's harm reduction guide to drug and alcohol use. It was very influential in, to me in writing my book about the harm reduction for alcohol. She also uh, has written... Practicing Harm Reduction Psychotherapy, and they're, they're two really excellent books I recommend very highly, and she works with, um, you're a founder of the Harm Reduction Therapy Center in California, I believe. Yes, yeah, I'm the uh, Director of Clinical Services and Training, and we're in San Francisco and Oakland. So tell us a little bit about the Harm Reduction Therapy Center and what you do there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're um, actually we we found out recently that we're the largest harm reduction organization in the world, which is amazing to me because we're quite small. Um, <laughs> we started in 2000 um, and started seeing our first clients in 2002, and um, we are sort of a combination of a therapy practice, a training institute. And we're also beginning to conduct harm reduction therapy outcome research on the work that we do. Um, we started really small with just a what we call our private practice model, which is a general fee-for-service therapy center. It looks like any other kind of psychotherapy offices. Um, and there we see folks for either short-term or long-term. There's, We don't have a set program like most drug treatment programs do where you come in and you do a certain thing and you're there for a number of weeks or months. Um, you can stay as little as one session or you can stay for years and years. Um, it's all individual therapy-based, um, but we do have therapy groups as well, and we also have psychiatric and addiction medicine services on site. And that practice, that's pretty small. We see about 70 clients a year, um, and the fees, you know, uh, the fees, you know, are pretty much market rate fees. But then we also take groups of our therapists and place teams, small teams, in community organizations throughout San Francisco, um, where we do the exact same services. Um, but we do them for free, and we do them on a drop-in basis for folks who are seriously mentally ill, drug-addicted, often homeless, and often with complicating medical problems. Um, and we do what you know, what Edith Springer, who is the, the originator, really, I think, of harm reduction therapy, we do what she calls sidewalk therapy. Mm-hmm. So we work with people wherever they're at even if they're too chaotic or too paranoid to be able to come into the building and actually sit down and talk with a therapist, we'll talk with them on the sidewalk. Um, We may see a person for five minutes, five times a week, um, or another person might be able to actually make an appointment and sit down and have a, you know, sort of a regular psychotherapy session. So we're in six different um, community-based programs throughout San Francisco, and that we see about a thousand clients a year in all of those different sites, um, and our our staff are all part of a, uh, a a two-year intensive clinical training program. So we take folks who are postmasters or pre-doctoral or postdoctoral who finished all of their regular psychotherapy training, and then we train them specifically in in harm reduction psychotherapy model. Um, and they stay with us for a minimum of two years. And most folks sort of hang on forever, which is what our goal is, is to create a community of harm reduction psychotherapists. And so by being able to offer interns jobs down the road, um, you know, we, we manage to hold on to a lot of the best 
most amazing therapists in the world. Um, I guess the other thing that's unique about us is that we we are specifically um, um, experts in uh, what's called dual diagnosis or working with people who have Mm -hmm. a lot of emotional or psychiatric problems and all of our work is is really trauma-based because we understand that a lot of folks with with significant alcohol or drug problems have a history of trauma that's really, really driving a lot of their misuse and a lot of their difficulty in getting their use under control. So what specific psychotherapeutic techniques would you use to deal with trauma? Is there some specific school that you subscribe to? Or are there many? Um, yeah, there's there are many. There's not a specific school that, that we subscribe to, but we're very we're we're very aware that the old way of dealing with trauma, which is by having the person tell their story and sort of get it off their chest kind of thing, mm-hmm. that that actually doesn't work and it often re traumatizes people. Mm-hmm. And so some of what we do is stop people from talking about the trauma and work with them on techniques of deep relaxation, breathing, getting their bodies sort of centered in the chair, um, helping them feel safe. And after they learn how to do all that, if they still feel the need to talk about the exact details, then, then of course, we'll do that. But, but we want people to not end up activated and upset and, you know, a mess as a result of talking about their trauma because that will just fuel more drug and alcohol use. Now, you see, that was my exact experience when I was dealing with depression, which was, uh, I think, was due to events in my adult life, rather traumatizing events. And what I finally found that was working for me was thought stopping and then thought replacement. When I started yep. thinking about the bad things, you know, obsessively that had happened to me in the past, I had to say, stop thinking right. about that. Start thinking about something good instead, and I would have some specific good things to think about. And that would really help me, you know, to not go uh, diving down into the depression. It would stop it. And I would mm-hmm. be more, much more able to function, and that that seems to be similar to what you're talking about. Right, right, exactly, exactly. I, you know, I think a, a supervisor a long time ago was talking about panic disorder, and he said to me, you know, you can't convince a person that they're not dying when their body tells them they are. Mm-hmm. And it really stuck with me that right, if our bodies um, or our brains are giving us danger signals then there's no way that we can overcome those um, without first dealing with putting those things, you know, calming our body down, stopping the thoughts, getting sort of getting out of the trauma field and, and getting back into present life. Because, um, you know, with folks with significant trauma, what, what happens in the brain is that, um, that your brain doesn't store that trauma as long-term memory. It stores it, stores it in short-term memory. So every time the memory comes back up, it's as if it's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we want to do is, is slow down the process, give that person a chance to have those memories actually reside in the past um, so that it's, they're not, it's not so overwhelming. And you can do that, you know, with body work or, like you said, you know, with stop thought, um, thought stopping and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's really, um, you know, it, it really makes the work much more successful for people when you really pay attention to, you know, what's, what's driving this misuse of, of alcohol and drugs and, and trying to, you know, what we, we like to call harm reduction therapy, healing from the inside. Okay, I read uh, Jeannie Little's article in Andrew Tatarski's book about the groups. Could you tell us a little bit about the harm reduction groups? Are they very structured? Yeah, the the harm reduction groups are actually sort of revolutionary, um, and Jeannie Little has written quite extensively about them. She's really the originator of these types of groups. The groups are absolutely not structured. They're meant to be long-term psychotherapy groups. and, however, the culture of the group is, is extremely important. 
which is why the skills of the group leader are really important. Um, we we develop and foster a culture of diversity within the group so that we have people in our groups who are actively using, who might be intoxicated at the time of the group. We have people who are wanting to be abstinent but aren't yet. We have people who are wanting to moderate or change their use in some way. We have people who are in 12-step recovery um, and wanting to main, have a therapy group and also maintain abstinence. So we put everybody in the same group, and, and part of that is it goes against all the conventional wisdom. Because in you know a, a traditional treatment says, oh my goodness, you can't put people who are still using in a group with people who are abstinent because of this what I like to call the contagion factor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that you'll you'll threaten somebody else's sobriety if you do that. Um, and what we like to say is, you know, there's a difference between safety and comfort. It's not unsafe to be in a group if you're abstinent. It's not unsafe to be in a group with people who aren't abstinent. It's uncomfortable. And it might be uncomfortable in the extreme. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you might just be, you know, triggered like crazy. But what better place to deal with real-world triggers than in a supportive group with a experienced therapist. And so we, we foster this, um, this culture in the group of there but for the grace of God go I. Everybody is welcome no matter what state they're in. Everybody gets to see maybe where they've come, maybe where they're afraid they're going to end up. And the uncomfortable feelings that people have get dealt with right in the present. And and our experience is that people get so much stronger. You know, they, they go out into the world and they're no longer afraid to go to, you know, their best friend's wedding because there's alcohol there. You know, they're no longer afraid to hang out with a buddy who's smoking pot because they've they've experienced those cravings and have learned how to deal with them in a group of, of people. So that's really what's revolutionary about about the groups, um, and and it's pretty it's pretty amazing. You know, I mean, Jeannie talks about this one example when she was doing a homeless vets group, um, and it was very much at the beginning. She was just kind of feeling her way to try and, and figure out how to do this, and a man came in um, and sort of scraped a chair kind of into the middle of the group and sat down and immediately nodded out. You know, he was on heroin, he nodded out, sort of fell asleep. And the group looked at her like, oh, my goodness, now what are you going to do? And she thought, I guess he needs to sleep because that's what he's doing. And so she went over and she took some of his stuff and bundled it into a pillow and put it under his neck so that he wouldn't wake up with a crick in his neck. Mm-hmm. And And that turned the group around. That let the group members know you know, this therapist is really going to take care of us, no matter how we come in. And so that's, um, you know, so that's the, the harm reduction groups that we do. In, in the homeless uh, programs, we sometimes have 15, 20, 25 people in the group. They're all drop-in groups in, in community programs. We do them five days a week for an hour. You can come in at any time. You can leave at any time. You can come back. Um, there's no rules about having to sit still. In our private practice groups, the people are much um, much higher functioning. For the most part, they're more able to tolerate sitting in a group for an hour and a half, but they don't have to. Again, if somebody walks, you know, the group is at 5 o'clock and somebody walks in at 5.20 and they say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm late, our response to them is, you're not late, you're here. <laughs> you know, so it's, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's extremely welcoming and and I think that's the the other the other big component of harm reduction therapy, whether individually or in groups, is shame busting. We work really hard to reverse the experiences of shame that people have had at the hands of other professionals, you know, at the hands of family and friends, and most importantly, against themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, and try and get people to be curious about why they're doing what they're doing rather than self-hateful about it. Okay, this 
um, we do some really similar things with our online yeah, Ken, groups. Ken, I'm having a little trouble hearing you. Okay. We do some really similar things with our online groups uh -huh. um, where we have uh, a live chat that we do every night at 9 p.m. Eastern time, and people can just drop in any time they want to. We have mm -hmm. people who are absent and mixed together with people who want to be safer drinkers or people mm -hmm. who want to reduce people who are tapering off alcohol because they're afraid of withdrawal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everybody gets along together and everybody just can support each other's goal. It's like, you know, I want you to achieve the goal that you picked for yourself. And that's how we've yeah. been addressing it. And it's work mm -hmm. it works really well. It, do it does work really well. I think as soon as we get away from the traditional, um, you know, Addicts, for one thing, I hate the term. Addicts are bad people, basically, and have to be controlled and told what to do, and you have to watch out for them. And and at the same time, we patronize them by saying that they're they're too weak to be around everybody else. Um, once we get rid of that old paradigm, people are really accepting of each other. They really do get it that, wait a minute, I'm struggling with this, and of course you are too. And it builds it builds a community that that I believe, and this is where my political activist self comes into play. I believe that this is the change that we need to make in America. We need to create a community of people that understand that we're all doing the best that we we can. We can all do better, and that we need to sort of help and support ourselves rather than be judgmental and mistrustful. That sounds really good. Uh, can I ask you, how did you get involved with harm reduction? Well, I was, um, you know, I've been a therapist for 35 years. And um, and in the early 80s, I became the director of a psychiatric outpatient clinic in San Francisco in the Castro, which is the gay male neighborhood in San Francisco. And it was 1982, and it was all—it was the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, and people were dying all over the place. Um, we didn't know why, we didn't know how. Everybody was terrorized by this disease, and a lot of the gay men started drinking and/or using drugs heavily, and um, at, you know, as a result of trying to deal with all this. And I would do my, you know the thing I was taught to do as a, as a therapist, which is send them off to drug treatment. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them never went, or they would go and they'd get kicked out, um, or they were too sick to make it there. Um, and I started saying, well, why, I, I don't understand what's going on. And then I started visiting some drug treatment programs, and I was frankly appalled at the way clients were being treated. Um, they were being humiliated, they were being called names, they were made to stand in corners. Uh, I mean, it was really, it was really abusive. And, and then I started going to some 12-step meetings. And that was a very different environment. I mean, obviously, you know, they weren't abusing anybody there. Yeah. But there were also some, some similarities in that people were being told to shut up they mm -hmm. were being told, take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they were they were told to not trust themselves. Mm -hmm. And I just found it really frightening, absolutely frightening, that we were treating people this way. So I just started kind of making it up as I went along. Um, and in 1996, so I just started trying everything I could try keeping people with drug problems in our clinic, in our psychiatric clinic, even though they weren't supposed to be there, um, and just trying good old psychotherapy. And it it worked fairly well. It didn't work great. Um, mm -hmm. But um, in 1996, then, I accidentally ended up on a panel. I, I, I heard about, somebody said, there's this crazy woman who's talking at San Francisco General next week. You'd love her. Her name is Edith Springer. Mm -hmm. And I went and I listened to Edith Springer talk, and she talked, and she used the word harm reduction. And she was a wild woman. She talked about working with active drug users and working out on the streets with people, and I just loved it. I thought, this, this is a woman who respects people. 
so I kind of hooked up with her a little bit, and then I um, found out about the Harm Reduction Coalition in Oakland. Uh, the main office is in New York, but there's one here in Oakland as well. Mm-hmm. And I just started getting involved with them doing political advocacy. And um, and because one of my specialties is psychopharmacology, I started teaching courses on drugs for them. Um, and they put me on a panel in 1996 with Alan Marlat, whom I had just read all of his stuff, and I was like all in awe of him. Mm, and, absolutely. Um, pardon? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely, yes. And afterwards, um, I contacted him, and he invited me up to his um, his you know, place, Addictive Behaviors Research, Research Center in Seattle, and said, you know, you need to write about this. And I said, well, but Alan, you're you're the one who's doing this. You're the expert. He said, no, no, I'm a researcher, and I do clinical work as part of research, but you're the only one who's trying to put this all together. So you really need to step up and write. And I'm like, oh, man, I hate to write. <laughs> um, but he opened up his library to me and gave me access to his 15 or 20 postdoctoral students who were all experts in different aspects of addiction. And it opened up this whole world to me that that I never knew about. There's an enormous body of research and literature on addiction that has mm-hmm. nothing to do with the disease model, that has nothing to do with 12-step nothing that I'd ever been taught in school. And and so I just became a you know, a student and finally put it all together in building a model of psychotherapy and then um and then he introduced me to his editor at Guilford who published the book in two thousand. You know, but what I what I found through that work with him um was that there are four or five what we love to call evidence-based practices, um, there are four or five things that have been so well studied about what helps people with alcohol or drug problems that I created a treatment model that incorporates all of those things. Um, Motivational enhancement or motivational interviewing, uh, working through the stages of change, um, a lot of cognitive behavioral, um, working with triggers and cravings, and but at the same time i'm i'm an old fashioned therapist and i really believe in psychodynamic therapy that mm-hmm. that relationship and what happens between the therapist and the client is often the most healing of anything you know more so than technique and so i sort of took all of these cognitive behavioral methods and just kind of wove them into good old fashioned talk therapy you know, um, mm-hmm. and that's what ended up to be harm reduction psychotherapy. And we're actually, Jeannie Little and I just finished what is going to be called the second edition of practicing harm reduction psychotherapy, but we've learned so much in the 11 years since that book first came out that it's actually a whole new book. It's almost twice as long <laughs> And it's got chapters about ethics, the ethics of harm reduction. It's got chapters on trauma. Um, so we're really excited about it. It will be out um, the end of uh, end of October. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing that. And I think what you were talking about, I think you could call it the therapeutic alliance. I think that's really yep. an important aspect. Mm-hmm. You know? And the more traditional treatments, they just don't have any therapeutic alliance. It's like, do your steps, say you're powerless, say alcohol is powerful, say you're cured by a higher power, and, you know, if you don't do that, it's like, you're bad. And right, there's, right. There's no room for any therapeutic alliance in the really right. traditional Minnesota model. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and the mythology about it is that it works, and that if it doesn't work, it's your fault. And mm-hmm. that's that's something that really makes me angry that you know that that the american people and the media in particular have have sort of swallowed this line that it works when all of the research shows that it doesn't work very well and it doesn't work for very many people um but we can't seem to get away from this 
you know, and now of course we've got TV shows on, you know, rehab and celebrity rehab mm-hmm. and intervention and all of the things that we have known for 15 years don't work. Now they're being put out on reality TV. So we've got we've got a job ahead of us, Ken. <laughs> we do indeed. Well, I see I see Stanton Peel has come in. I'm going to say thank you very much for being our guest tonight. Thank you, Ken, and hi, Stanton. <laughs> okay, I'm going to hang up on you now. I'm going to do a little quick blurb. The website is hamsnetwork.org. We're a support group, free of charge, lay-led for anyone who wants to make a positive change in your drinking habits. I'm going to bring Stanton on. Uh, here we go. Hello, Stanton. Ken, what a great day today. Um, I was very struck uh the experiences I had today. Hey, tell your listeners what happened to me this morning, what occurred in my little life. Oh, you were uh, published in The Fix on the front page. Yes. Tell them what The Fix is. The Fix is a very mainstream 12-step type magazine online about addiction. And you you commented when you saw it about the long introduction they gave, which I think you hit that nail on the head. How, how did you characterize it? Five paragraphs of uh, well, it was five paragraphs of the introduction to kind of say distance themselves from Stanton Peel. It's funny it, they actually uh, said he uh, they put me on their t- list of the top ten addiction experts in America. And then, uh, you know, when I said, you know, I don't know if they did that. You also commented on that. And um, you pointed out some inaccuracies. And I said, you know, I don't know if they really describe what I'm about there. And then they invited me to submit something. But here's how they described what it was. In response to being on that top ten list, he sent us a treatise. <laughs> as though, you know, I came up with the whole concept. And uh, as you pointed out, they're mainly apologizing for having me there, which I think represents some of their upper echelon's thinking. But also, uh, you know, obviously they're trying to avoid too much criticism from the readership. But nonetheless, they ended up by saying um, in the last two sentences, and I'll live by this, there's no denying that to a surprising degree many of his once heretical beliefs have increasingly been adopted by mainstream medicine, or we might say mainstream addiction treatment. Whether or not you agree with him, it's a safe bet that his alternative approach will be at the center of the most critical debates in the coming decades. So I'll, I'll, if they could fit that on my gravestone, I'll go with that. And I made, you know, five points that I wanted to tell people about. Uh, addiction is not caused by substances, which is, I think, something that your two guests today were getting to. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think of addiction as a disease, you think, well, let's focus solely on the disease uh, that comes from dealing with these addictions, with these substances. Your house isn't burning down, is it, Ken? No, no, I just live by the firehouse here. I, people will have a hard time believing that you live in a monastery when they hear those uh, fire engines run by. But, um, um, And I think both of your guests are talking about people's lives. They're talking about what it means to encounter people and look at the whole structure of their lives and to shift the focus from the addiction to the person. And, um, of course, another way of approaching that, as I point out in the article, is that the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of the American Psychiatric Association is going to include compulsive gambling as an addiction. As soon as you make that leap, that's a gigantic leap, and it's obviously one I anticipated with love and addiction. Um, and uh, it, it can put you in a whole different ballgame because you're no longer focusing on the substance. Once you recognize that anything can be destructive, you really are getting into a whole different way of getting your head around it. And I think both of your guests tonight are people with different ways of getting their heads around it. And the most important thing, I think, 
in what they're doing is they were both struck by how harmful the current approach is. I mean, the justification for the disease model is how grateful people are for it and how helpful it is. But they both said they were struck by how uh, Pat said, you know, in a way abusive it was. And I, I love those Canadian guests in their, low key, their own low-key way. They said, we're not very familiar with the uh, Minnesota model. Um, and then the woman of the two said, you know, we don't approach people by telling them that they're wrong about their own experience. And that's condition. That's the focus, that's the fundamental in the disease model. You have a disease that means that you can't really comment on your own life. And both of your guests are people who are try came to addiction and got their heads around addiction in a completely different fashion. They looked at it in a totally different way. And, of course, what I'm doing in the fix is trying to say, shake your head loose and think about this whole different way of thinking about addiction. The second point I made of the five points in my article was the truth is that most people recover naturally from addiction, which is just hard for people to understand, uh, especially in 12-step groups, because they tend to see the people who don't recover at on, on their own, and often in good part, as I sneak into the article, because they're in 12-step groups. Uh, the third point I made is harm reduction is the most important 21st century innovation. You'll be happy to know I was uh, I was tooting for you mm -hmm. because it's a whole different way of thinking about addiction. It's not thinking you're going to medically cure it. It's thinking you're going to manage people's lives, and many people have one variety or another of a problem that that applies to. And then the fourth point I made was treatment is more than providing support for addicts to quit. And that's exact. Of, of course, your two guests are both about that. Your two guests are both. They're dealing with pretty serious people who are one end of the spectrum of addiction. If you think about young people, I point out, it's not good to think about them as addicts. It's good to think about them getting into the mainstream of life, developing skills, having goals, making progress in life. At the end of the spectrum where both of your guests are talking, you've got people often with quite disorganized or very spartan lives that you have to guarantee minimum preservation for. You have to manage, they have to survive in order for them to live as a human being and certainly to make any progress. So those are two examples of how the whole traditional, let's focus on the medical disease of taking the substance doesn't really capture what you're after. And then the last point I made was empowerment versus powerlessness. The most bizarre thing to me of all, even people, it strikes me, in 12-step groups have to realize, don't they, that giving people a message that they're disempowered isn't a positive experience. And they invent all kinds of ways of hitting the cue ball off the side pocket to try and explain that. We only say you're powerless. But we don't really mean you're powerless. You're being empowered by turning your will over to something bigger than you. You know, and they just go through those rigmaroles. Mm -hmm. And, of course, as I speculate in the piece, is that the most direct way to go about encouraging people to feel they can control their own lives and their own bodies by having this side pocket cue ball that makes three bounces before it goes in the hole? It's really not the right way to go about it. And, you know, I said, I, I really expect that we need to go in a different direction as we get into the 21st century. And so what, you know, the theme for today, from the time I got up in the morning and contemplated the article, which, I mean, I wrote, but they edited, and I listened to your two guests who are people who just have the capability of just looking at this whole situation with fresh eyes, it's just there's no place more that we need to reconceive what it is, the phenomenon we're dealing with, which will directly lead, I believe, to new ways of helping people and dealing with the range of things that fall in the addiction, you know, cornucopia. So anyhow, Ken, I'll let you 
uh, I know uh, people don't realize that you live in a turret with a with a <laughs> foghorn and a um, uh, it's it's kind of like a watchtower that beams a light around Brooklyn, and you live at the very top of that. And so, I mean, you've got a lot of important duties guiding ships into the harbor. So uh, I'll let you close up and, uh, you know, tend to your business then. And we'll talk again next week. All right. I'm going to plug your appearance on Stop the 13th Step in AA. It's in the archive. I listened to it from Tuesday. It was very good. Next week, our guests are Cindy Clay from Helping Individual Prostitutes Survive and Adam Zimbardo, a marriage and family counselor who works with gay and the alternative sexuality people. And thank you, everyone, and good night.